big announcement. I am so excited to announce this because this is something that I have been working on and putting my love into for quite some time now. It is the Together in Love, the four-month relationship mentorship that I am putting on for you guys. This is really a mentorship that's focused on learning how to love yourself more authentically, how to open your heart to real love, how to create relationships that ultimately leave you and your current or future partners fulfilled on a soul level. So this is for singles. This is for couples. This is for triads. It's really for everybody out there who's wanting to deepen their relationship with themselves and create the optimal love life for them. So you'll join me. You'll have a community of like-minded people, and we're all going to traverse this tricky waters of self-discovery, emotional intimacy, sexual exploration. You know, we go through the entire thing, and I'm bringing on some of my favorite guest expert coaches who are also putting on workshops. So you'll have coaching with me. We'll have group calls. We'll have workshops. We have all kinds of things. And I absolutely guarantee by the end of this, you're going to feel a a shift and a transformation within yourself and feel more comfortable expressing your desires, how to get those. What what happens with conflict resolution? Um, How do we use that to strengthen our relationship as opposed to instead of how to be a detriment to it. So if you guys are interested, I am going to announce it and release it fully within the uh, next couple of weeks. But if you are interested, let me know on my social media at Wit and Love, or you can email me to save your spot for sure. And I can make sure that you're on the list to receive the email as soon as I launch. Much love, guys. Hope to see you soon. Okay, real talk. I know that if you're like me, You've definitely had some maybe awkward conversations or a little bit of uneasiness about visiting a clinic or your gynecologist or a healthcare professional when it comes to an STD test. Maybe they give you that look. I have a friend who can only give him a sticky note to tell him that she wants to get an STD test. Look, a lot of people are like this. So this is why we've partnered up with Let's Get Checked for their STD testing. Their mission which I love, is to make professional health testing easily accessible and ensure that there are no individual that ever feels put off by getting an STD test. It's so important. I can't say it louder for the people in the back. Get tested. Please get tested. It's just smart. Over 1 million sexually transmitted infections are acquired every day worldwide. 51% don't get tested because they don't want to bring up sex or STDs in discussion um, with their doctor, with their healthcare provider. So this is why I love Let's Get Checked. If you want to go straight to the point, let me give you something right out of the bat, right right off the bat, I guess I should say. Use our code trylgc.com slash TSWL for 20% off of your at-home STD testing. Again, that's try, T-R-Y, L-G-C.com slash T-S-W-L, and you will get 20% off of that bad boy. So let's, let me tell you how this works and why I love it so much. One, it's delivered straight to your door. So all you do is go online to Let's Get Checked. You pick whatever um, test you want. And they have all kinds of panels for STD testing. You collect your sample, At home, you return your sample. They give you a prepaid shipping label. From there, they review your results. 
Um, and then you get it back in about two to five days. Then you'll have a consultation where you can talk to a nurse if you want. And then in some cases, if necessary, you can even get a prescription and they'll send it to the pharmacy of your choosing. So really, it can't not be easier. And this comes from the highest ranking levels of accreditation. So know that this is very, very confidential. They know absolutely what they are doing. And you don't have to have those uncomfortable office visits anymore with the funny little side eye of maybe you shouldn't be having sex, whatever it is. It take it makes it so simple to get tested, and it's just the way to do it. So let me give you the num- the code again. It is try t r y l g c dot com slash t s w l for twenty percent off. Hey everybody, welcome and some exciting news. Our friend, the author Disha Filia, was nominated for the National Book Award, yes, for her collection of short stories, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. So you can learn all about this incredible book about sex and love and connection in our interview with Disha on episode 61 of the True Sex and Wild Love podcast that was on August 21st, 2020. I also want to give you a heads up about my new online course, Pleasure, Peace, and Power. This four-week course gives you database tips and strategies to unlock a more sexually in touch, sexually satisfied, serene you in stressful times. We could all use that, right? Stay tuned for details about how you can sign up for the course. Now. In this episode of True Sex and Wild Love, we speak to Dr. David Lay. He's a clinical psychologist and sex therapist in practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he's also the executive director of a large outpatient mental health and substance abuse program. David is the author of Insatiable Wives, about hot wifing and the cuckold lifestyle, ethical porn for dicks, and the myth of sex addiction. Wow, those are some of my favorite topics. I don't know about you. In this episode, we mostly focused on hot wifing, which is a relationship style where the wife or female partner's non-monogamy is the center of the couple's sex life. Have a listen. Hope you enjoy. I'm so delighted to welcome our very special guest, David Lay, to True Sex and Wild Love. Today, he's a clinical psychologist and the author of three books that really have impacted so many people's sex lives. Welcome to True Sex and Wild Love, David Lay. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, it's funny um, uh, what you say about my my books impacting people's sex lives. I've had conversations with some other authors and I've said, you know, do you think we get credit in heaven for all of the orgasms that people (laughs) have as a result of our books? Because I'm really hoping so, you know? You do. You need to. I mean, I think so. I think somebody up there is keeping track and you're for sure on the, if, if orgasms have anything to do with it, you are on your way to heaven. Yeah. Yeah, But it really is. it, it, It tickles me when I get, you know, when I get emails from people that say, you know, especially, uh, when they say, you know, look, I had so much shame around my sexuality until I read your book, and now I've started to accept it, accept my sexuality, my needs, embrace it, and I'm exploring it now, um, and my life is so much better. And it, 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 you know, it, it warms my heart every time. It's, it's great. I mean, I, a lot of people who write 
I think that's why we do it almost. I mean, we have to because we're curious and we want to write about the topics that are meaningful to us. But I think a lot of us um, really just live to hear people say, the way you presented the research really set me free. And I want people to know a couple things. First of all, it's so appropriate that David is here with us today because today, the day we're recording is the last day of um, sexual health day, sexual health month, excuse me, all of September is sexual health month. And here you are rounding out the month with us. And I think that the way you contribute to people's sexual health, David, among so many ways, but with your books, the first one, Insatiable Wives, about hot wifing and the cuckold lifestyle. Um, The second one that I know about, sorry if I'm not going in order, um, Ethical Porn for Dicks, um, about just that, right? How to be ethical, if you will, in your porn consumption, if you have a dick, but for everybody. And well, no, 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 it's for all those guys named Richard who watch porn. <laughs> I, I, you know, I did, yeah, I didn't realize it was a play on words with penises. It's, just, it's, public. Yeah, it's well. just only for guys named Dick, okay? Right. And, and then your third one, which we have to talk about as well today, uh, which is the myth of sex addiction. And I think with all these books, you've sort of set different and perhaps overlapping uh, groups of people really free um, from a lot of shame that they might have felt. So I just want to start by thanking you for being here and thanking you for all your contributions to our sexual health. Because as you said, part of sexual health is letting go of shame, getting facts, and letting go of bias and presumptions about our sexuality. Thanks for being here, David. Well, thank you. Um, and, and likewise, I mean, your book on true, um, it really goes at the same kind of thing and, and just, you know, challenging so many, so many of the unhealthy, damaging myths around female sexuality. Um, you know, we, we, we are, we are kindred souls. We're kindred souls. And I mean, writing my book on true is how I learned about you. I like to say that, um, I met, David Lay through hot lifing. <laughs> and you are not the only person that can say that. <laughs> and I like people to just take that however they want. But so when I was writing on True, I kept getting these um, DMs. I was on social media and guys would DM me and say, are you a hot wife? And I'd be like, duh, yeah, I'm hot and I'm married. <laughs> and maybe like the third time I realized, wait, these people are using this term in a way that like, maybe I'm not understanding. I Googled hot wife and David Lay's name was one of the first that came up. And I fell into this rabbit hole um, of trying to understand what a hot wife was, what hot wifing is, what the cuckold lifestyle is. And the way I got a grip on that is I read your book, David, Insatiable Wives, uh, which I loved. Can you tell us what is hot wifing and the cuckold lifestyle? What drew you to it? Um, and you know, we just want to know know about it. And yeah. short of reading your book, Insatiable Wives, which is one of my favorite social science reads ever. Oh, that's kind of you. Yeah. yeah, it would be nice uh, to hear you just break it down for us because you are an expert on hot wifing uh, and and the cuckold lifestyle. 
Well, um, you know, your audience um, actually knows more about this than they think, because if they have read the news in the past month or two and seen any of the articles about Jerry Falwell Jr., um, they have been exposed to the idea of hot wifing or cuckolding. Um, you know, the, and, and, and in that story, you know, um, uh, apparently, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. liked to, uh, you know, sit in a chair and watch his um, beautiful wife have sex with a, another man, um, you know, while Jerry observed. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that is in essence kind of, you know, one of the, one of the cores of, uh, of, of hot wifing and cuckolding. Um, the, the, I fell into it, um, because I, uh, uh I, as a clinical psychologist, I've always, <clears throat> worked around sexuality issues with the last name lay right i really had no option <laughs> you guys um, it's spelled with an e that yes it is but it <laughs> sounds like yeah you know, sounds like get laid you know and uh uh so you know I, that was my only option to be a sex doctor of some kind and um but I, uh, uh, I'd always worked around sexuality. I've worked with sex offenders for many years. Um, I, and then I expanded into work with um, people living kind of alternative sexual lifestyles, whatever that is, BDSM, uh, non-monogamy, kink, um, uh, swinging, variety, whatever. And, um, but I, 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 I ran across these, these couples that lived the, the hot wife cuckold lifestyle where they described that the wife was non-monogamous um, with, the, with the husband's permission and the husband was monogamous. And this was 10 years ago. Um, and and, uh, and I'll, be, I'll be absolutely honest. My first response at hearing this was to say, gosh, I'm, that doesn't sound that doesn't sound healthy. Mm-hmm. But I, I, both of these couples, it, it was remarkable, actually, were, were very, very healthy. They had incredible communication skills. They had successful families and careers and kids. They'd been married 20 years. And by every standard that a psychologist would use, these were healthy people and, and healthy marriages. And so I questioned myself, basically, why did I initially assume that these that, that this lifestyle, that, that this sexual practice must be unhealthy. And I realized that I had unthinkingly allowed a lot of bias around female sexuality, around monogamy, around promiscuity to intrude into my clinical thinking. And mm-hmm. the thing is that most therapists are like me. Most therapists, and people are always surprised by this, most therapists in the United States get no training in sexuality. I was talking to a, a person today that I supervise, and she is a you know very advanced social worker. She said she she had no classes in graduate school or undergraduate about sexuality. And Can yet, you imagine? I know it, it's mind blowing because because sexuality is such a critical part of people's lives. I mean, the more sex people have, the longer they live. It, it's actually connected to, to lifespan. And but unfortunately, most therapists, including me, get no training on sexuality. And so what that means is we end up allowing our biases and our ignorance to um to influence what we see as sexually healthy. And so when I realized that that's what I'd done, I said, well, you know, gosh, I, I need, I I need to fill this gap. So I looked and there was nothing in the literature um, 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 about 
hot wifing or cuckolding. I found one study that had been published in the 1990s by a uh, Israeli psychologist who did an analysis of penthouse letters um, uh, about you know wife sharing. That was right. it. Holy crap! And so I kind of dove in, and and I dove in trying to understand the, the 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 female sexuality biology, the history of it. I looked at literature, you know, um, examples of of wife sharing, you know, historically, um, and I interviewed couples. I would travel. I, I travel. I used to pre pre COVID. God, I used to travel <laughs> a lot, and whenever Never. I would travel. I would post ads on Craigslist back when Craigslist had personals ads and looking for these couples because that's where they were finding a lot of their partners. These these couples would post ads mm-hmm. on Craigslist for, for men. And and I would say, you know, I just want to interview you. Well, they always thought that it was a scam. They always thought that I was really just wanting to have with the wife. They were like, oh, sure, he wants to, quote, right. interview, yeah. and, unquote, us, honey. And they would, they would send me naked pictures of the wife, and, and I'd right. say, gosh, you know, she's lovely, beautiful, thank you. Um, but I really, really do just want to talk to you. And so I'd interview all these people and hear their stories and how they made this work in their life. Um, and it was just so, so interesting. And at the end of the day, I had yeah. a book. Um, and You sure did. I mean, if I could interject, please. Insatiable Wives, what I love about it is as a comparativist myself, and, you know, I'm very interdisciplinary in my approach to female social behavior, whether it's maternal behavior or stepmothering behavior or sexual behavior, I really find that it doesn't really help to just rely on one discourse or point of view to break open a complex topic, for example, the topic of female sexuality. You don't want to just talk to a bunch of doctors. You don't want to just talk to a bunch of psychologists. You want to talk to people from different fields. And you also want to draw in, as you said, pop culture texts, great works of literature, paintings to help understand female sexuality. And I just was so um, thrilled that you did that in Insatiable Wives, that you sort of drew on many different discourses and you looked at, you know, female non-monogamy in many contexts. But then the other great thing is the storytelling, David. I mean, just those people that you interviewed obviously trusted you so much and they got, I think, um, that you were going to be a really respectful, curious, open listener and it really shows in the storytelling about the couples and their adventures. That's one of my favorite parts of Insatiable Wives. Just cool. you yeah. can you, you can feel the the connection between the couples, um, which like you, I went into it thinking like there must be something wrong with these people, right? Mm-hmm. These people into hot wifing and the cuckold lifestyle. But you can feel the connection because you it feels like you spent a lot of time with them, um, and you can feel your respect um, as a clinician, you know, and your curiosity. But the storytelling, you guys, is great. Like, when, well, tell tell me the story of your favorite um, hot wiping couple that you interviewed. Did you have a favorite couple? Oh gosh, oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's a, I'm still in touch with 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 several of them, and um. You know the one that the one that I think influenced me the most, honestly, was this um, 
lady who had been um, she had been just traumatized as a child, and um, she was she was not interested in developing a close relationship with anybody because you know in her mind it was people that you trust and love that hurt you, and. Mm. She ended up um, meeting this guy who was not interested in monogamy and told her that on the first date. And as a result, it gave her the freedom to develop a close, intimate relationship with him. And they are still together 30 years later. And it was it was so interesting to me because it was, you know, and I tell the story to, to therapists a lot because it was a message that. monogamy the demand for monogamy was actually preventing her from healing from her trauma um Mm. and it was it was it was such an eye-opener to me because we as therapists you know particularly those of us without much training around sexuality think you know monogamous relationships are healthier than non-monogamous ones that's not true but many people believe that and and many folk, you know, b- believe that, you know, the ability to have a monogamous, intimate attachment is a sign of emotional health. I mean, it's like the baseline, right? It's like if you're an adult, if you're emotionally healthy, if you're sexually well-adjusted, then you're monogamous. I mean, I'm shocked by how many mental health professionals in the United States still really believe that. They really exactly. think that if you're not monogamous, there's some kind of pathology. And, and so, you know, that, that one, it always stands out to me because it was just, again, such a, such a wake up call. And that, in a lot of ways, that's what that, that's what all my books are really is about, you know, me kind of recounting my own wake up call around some of this stuff right. uh, and inviting other, inviting readers to, to come along with me on that, on that kind of, Hey, Let's let's examine some of our assumptions here and question them. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when these guys were reaching out to me, asking me if I was a hot wife, which I'm not. I mean, if I were, I would feel probably comfortable sharing that. And um, if anybody is, hey, enjoy that. I'm not. But I loved, you know, when I went to their profiles it was so counterintuitive to me. I think one of the guys who asked me um, was, or two of the guys were like former military guys. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them was like in some kind of service, like I believe he was uh, a firefighter. And I remember when I interviewed you and I told you that you weren't surprised. Can you tell me a little bit about you know, is there, we talked about how this is normal and it's a normal part of of sexuality and there's nothing unhealthy about it. Is there a type of guy who is drawn particularly to, you know, being with the hot wife and the hot wife scenario? And, um, yeah. So, you know, first, um, you know, um, just to clarify again for your, for your listeners that, you know, the term hot wife and cuckold, um, there's a lot of overlap, but typically, um, hot wifing looks a little bit more like swinging in that the husband usually is kind of participating. Oftentimes he'll have sex with his wife with another man. Um, whereas in cuckolding, typically there's a bit more of a submissive, um, kind of element where the, the male, the husband may be kind of humiliated, um, on purpose by, by the wife and, and, and the man she has sex with. Um, that's not a hard and fast rule. There's mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of overlap. But the what, 
what's really, really interesting is that, you know, people assume that these husbands are, you know, powerless weaklings, you know, that they are, um, you know, and, and, and the term cuckold, you know, and, I mean, Chaucer talked about it. Shakespeare talked about it, you know, with, with this idea that a man whose wife cheats on him is a weakling that he's a weak man and not enough of a man to keep her satisfied so she doesn't go off with other men. And what's interesting, though, is that um, the cuckold fantasy, and, and it's become a really, really prevalent fantasy um, online with lots of pornography around it. So, so, some research suggests that um, you know, it is in the top, top 10 and sometimes even top two for, for pornography searches. It is really, really interestingly popular with men who are not weaklings, who, um, uh, you know, who who have this ideal of masculinity that they have to kind of live up to. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, we did some research a couple of years ago. Me, Justin Laymiller, and Dan Savage um, published a study about uh, re- researching cuckolding. And um, one of the things that we found um, is that, Italy is per capita the country in the world that has the highest rate of searches for cuckolding. Wow. And you know what it is is that you know Italy and and Russia um, and South America and places in the United States um, that have very high um, machismo kind of very stereotypical definitions of expected masculinity. Yeah. Like, like strong man cultures, right? Right. right. Yeah. Where dudes have to be all virile and masculine and then they want to let their hair down, if you will. Yeah, And then they want to escape from it. And, um, (laughs) you know, sexuality is sexuality and sexual fantasy is a chance to kind of escape from reality. And so, um, Sometimes these guys will search for, you know, that they'll, they will fetishize this fantasy because it's a chance for them to kind of give up being being this strong man that they feel like they're supposed to do is supposed to be and um, and kind of embrace kind of being a little powerless, roll around in it and survive it. Um, right. I had this one guy write me, I think maybe a year or so ago, um, because when when we published this study about cuckolding, Fox News um, got hold of this. And, and in you know, over the past couple of years, um, you know, folks like Steve Bannon and a lot of, you know, very significant folks in conservative movement, they've started calling each other cucks. Yeah, it's and, like the new put down. Yeah, it's this put down kind of, you know, calling calling each other weaklings, basically. So here mm-hmm. we published this study where one of the things we found was that cuckolding actually tended to be healthy, that it was healthy couples that were doing it and that engaging in cuckolding was actually positive and for the couples. It, it, overwhelmingly, they reported positive experiences. Well, Fox News flipped out and they're like, oh, my God, you know, they called CNN the cuck news network. And um, it's it's like the president making fun of Joe Biden for wearing a big mask. Right. Yes. yes. And so they I mean, like, yeah, there's a clip of Tucker Carlson, you know, acting like he doesn't know what cuckolding is and um, and and, and everything. And so then when 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 this news broke about Jerry Falwell, it was just like, uh uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Okay. We're not surprised, David. And and it, it is it is those guys who really, really um embrace this fantasy. And um and and, and I mean, like even like Paul Manafort, it has come out that um he engaged in cuckolding, like to watch his wife have sex with a bunch of black men. Um uh-huh. Roger Stone, um, you know, is also yes. he calls himself a trisexual, and he mm-hmm. um, in the '90s was exposed, you know, trying to find muscular men to have sex with his wife while he watched. And it's just like, you know, it, it's it's not it's not the liberals um, who are who are doing this. It tends to be more conservative men. So there's a really interesting thing, and I think that as a fellow social scientist, um, you will take the same beat on that that I will because it's such a great opportunity to tell people you really can't presume profile um, draw conclusions just from your observations of who you think people are and what they might be you really have to dig in and see what people's actual social and sexual behaviors are and this is one of the surprises right yeah that that cuckolding um, skews toward men who would you would describe as socially conservative and in sort of masculinist um, spheres of endeavor or mm-hmm. strongman cultures. It's really interesting. I wanted to say something, David, about cuck being used um, as an insult because not long after I interviewed you for Untrue. Um, which was like the highlight, really. One of the big highlights of writing that book for me was interviewing you and reading Insatiable Wives. I just started tweeting stuff like, you know, a guy would call another guy a cuck on Twitter and I would just maybe quote tweet it and say, I don't understand why this is an insult. Um, You know, a guy who embraces cuckolding is strong enough and brave enough um, to sort of let loose of the cultural script of, you know, masculine control over women. To me, you know, that's real strength. So I I really don't, after reading Insatiable Wives, I really don't get using cuck as a put down at all. To me, that they are able to disengage from this imperative that they're supposed to somehow keep their woman true and monogamous and that if they don't, they're a big failure as a dude. For them to flip that script, uh, to me, that takes a lot of courage and and strength. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, I I think so too, and 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 that's you know, I I ended up I ended the book, you know, really really with that same kind of perspective and saying, you know, uh, these couples actually have something to teach us. Um, and therapists out there that are like me that are, you know, re- re- reacting with bias and assumption, we need to cool our jets and listen. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was cool. It was, it was a really neat experience to, to write that book. Um, uh, also because in comparison to my other books, you know, it was, um, that book was a little more, a little more, I, I won't say positive, but, but, um, it, I was less kind of oppositional. My, my other books, um, I'm sort of being an oppositional defiant child taking on, 
um, uh, stuff in a bit of an aggressive way. Although after watching Trump last night, uh, <laughs> I will never describe myself as aggressive again. Yeah, I mean, that set a whole new standard for bullying and bluster. And really, I think he really, among other things, maybe really misread the temperature of everyone but his basis base about what constitutes a sort of virile muscular masculinity. Yeah. He overstepped that, right? And all the conservative commentators were like, he came out very hot. He came out too hot. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. yeah, that that yeah, yeah, it, it was a whole new level of aggression. And I think, you know, it's really relevant to this point uh, that we're talking about and to your book, Insatiable Wives, that he feels that he will become reelect, you know, he will be able to be president again. And that he is president uh, because of his performance of yeah. a certain version of masculinity. And what your book shows is that version of masculinity that he's trying to channel. There's no there there. Right, right. Yeah. So I wanted to, to touch on something quickly, and then I want to talk about your other books. But we talked about the racialized um, overtones of cuckolding. Right. And, um, you know, you and Murray Miller Young. Um, have both written about um, how there's a lot of racialized stuff and some people feel racist stuff going on in some cuckolding play where um, white couples are looking often for a black man or another man of color. They fetishize his penis size. Um, They call him a buck, right? So we don't really have time to get into it in a big way, but I I know that Murray Miller Young um, has written about that. If people want to delve into that a little bit deeper, what were what were your findings about that, David, and your thoughts about it? Um, I I think it's complex, and um, mm. you know, I, I I think that the the degree to which people, um, uh, and it's mostly white people who make, uh, race a component of their sexual fantasies. Um, uh, uh, Justin Miller, you know, has a book, tell me what you want, um, where he unpacks some of that. And one of the things he talks about is that, you know, um, black people and people of color in general, um, don't usually have a significant component of race in their sexual fantasy. And I think that we always have to remember though, that sexual fantasy is taboo. And the things that we fantasize about are the things that are more taboo. And so that, the reason that you know that 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 black men are being kind of fetishized in this cuckolding fantasy um, by many people is because of the racism in our society. It's an expression of the complexity that we have, uh, the complex feelings that we have around racism, and so. Yeah. You know, and now in some cases, mm-hmm. I think men are fantasizing about, you know, their their wife with a black man because they have this kind of illusion or illusion fantasy of the that she would never leave him for a black man. But then also the you know the idea of uh, of his wife of their wife cheating with a black man is more powerful. It's more salient. It's more maybe even kind of more humiliating. Um, and right. Yeah, and that 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 comes out of 
racism in society. It's not, I don't, I don't think it's intended to be racist, but it's an expression of the race, uh, of, of, of racial energy. Really interesting. And Marae Miller-Young, when she writes about BBC, which is Big Black Cock, you know, she she does say, you know, this is very complicated because there's a way in which um, the racialized cuckolding uh, is allowing white men to express desire for black That's men. Right. So she's, I, I think, I just really value um, all the things that you and Dr. Miller-Young have had to say about cuckolding and how you, you know, look at it from every angle. Um, I wanted to ask a, another question about cuckolding. Wow, this seems like we're just we're just focusing on cuckolding and that's not life. That's a hot topic, you know? But I, yeah, I do want to get to your other um, work, but I wanted to talk to you about the bisexuality piece here or the degrees to which men want sexual involvement mm-hmm. um, with their wife's male partner. What did you find about that? And... Um, can you tell us about that a bit? Because yeah, I know some so, men, you said, one of the funniest things you wrote, David, was you said, like, some men want to be so involved that they're, like, having sex with the guy. Yeah. Other men want to be so involved that they're, like, shaving their wives' legs for her and buying the condoms. And right. other men don't even want to be in the same room when it happens. And some men want to be in the room. But w- what did we find about, you know, do do these men tend to be bisexual or can we not generalize like that? Um, there's, there's a group of them that I think have bisexual urges, um, bisexual desires, and they, they use their wife's body essentially as a vehicle by which they can experience vicarious sexual contact with the man. And, um, now it's not all, you know, um, uh, some, as you said, some men are, are really not all that interested um, in that other man, but some some men get they, they get more obsessed with you know finding a big penis, so you know a guy with a big cock for their wife than the wife really is. You know the the, the guy is more <laughs> focused on the other man's penis than the wife is. And what I, what I found was that um, it is a lot of kind of suppressed bisexuality. And, and, and that's one of the things actually that they fantasize about is kind of being then forced to be bisexual, forced to perform oral oral sex on the, on the man or forced to go down on the wife after she has had sex with the man. Um, and, and that, that forcing is kind of forcing the guy over the hump, so to speak, so that it's not his fault that he had sex with this guy. Um, he was made to, you know? Right. So he doesn't have to feel that he's That's any right. less masculine. Yeah, I mean, there's I, so I, much complicated stuff going on here. Right. Thank God you wrote a book about it. Yeah, it was, you know, and and, and the, the funny thing about that book is that, um, you know, I had no idea when I wrote it that, uh, you know, cuckolding was going to explode the way it has, that it was going to be such a such a hot topic. I mean, I never imagined that, you know, CNN and Fox News would talk about it. I never imagined <laughs> that, you know, cuckolding was going to play a part in national politics. I mean, and and that it becomes part of our national discourse, right? It's like, it's a term. We use the term cuck. We use the term cuckolding. And I think people use the term hot wifing too. 
And the true hilarity, to your point, that so many people learned about it through Jerry Falwell Jr. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, 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 it's been it's been a fun ride. I mean, a, re- a really great book, a really great topic. I mean, one last question about that, which is, I know that we know from um, from data there there was one study that crunched uh, the data from two U.S. Census reports that found that something like over 20% of single U.S. adults said that they had been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Um, Do we have any idea the number of people in the U.S. who might be interested or worldwide who are into cuckolding and or hot wifing? Um, one study suggests that about 45% of men, um, report they have fantasized about seeing their partner with another, with another man. And what about women? What about cut queens? That, that is a, it is a big gap. We don't know actually a lot about the motivations that lead women, um, to engage in this. Now, um, historically, uh, cuckolding is almost universally introduced into a relationship or fantasy by the man. Um, there is, you know, in my book and, and, and all the people I interviewed, very rarely was it ever introduced by women, um, mostly out of kind of fear of, of slut shaming and being judged and everything else. However, mm-hmm. um, I think that's changing because I'm hearing now, um, from more women who are interested in finding a guy who um, is interested in that as well. Um, okay, so sorry, are we defining cut queening? What? Tell me what it is. Is it? A, I thought it meant a woman who. Well, tell tell me what it is because well, I've heard the term. Yeah, yeah. So so you're right. Cut queening is the wife who gets off on seeing her husband with other men. Are seeing her husband with other with other people typically. Female. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, right. The and 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 we do see that in swinging um, somewhat. Um, what I was talking about though is the um, the motivations of the cuckold dress. In other words, the the wife who has sex with other men um, while the husband you know watches or not. Um, what are what are her motivations as well? Is one of the things I'm always interested in. So that's a gap in the literature. Yeah, and why and the, why would a woman want to be the hot wife? Right. What are her subjective experiences? What are her motivations? Um, what's driving her? You're saying we just don't have a lot of research about that. We really don't. And and one of the things I found really interesting was um, the degree to which women described it is very empowering. Um, and, and and so you know I, I I'd be interested in in seeing that. I also you know I. The fact that we're now hearing from women um, about, you know, expressing this interest, I think, reflects um, reflects a greater level of, of 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 acceptance of female sexuality now. Um, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, however, I. I don't think this fantasy or desire is really ever going to go away. I mean, the the cover of my book 
is uh, an illustration of uh, uh, Gaiji's shows his his wife to Kendalee shows his wife to Gaiji's and Kendalee's mm. Greek king who had a beautiful wife and he one time showed him he had the, uh, his advisor Gaiji's hide in the closet and watch while his wife got naked mm. and you know <laughs> so this and now now we have you know guys that have naked pictures of their wife or girlfriend on their phone that they show their buddies it's the same thing. Right. Like you're saying there's a bit of a spectrum going on here. Yeah. There's a lot of motivations, you know, and, 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 and it, it makes guys feel kind of like a king to have a hot wife that other men want. Mm, And we need to figure out more what it makes the woman doing it feels like. So see, I see an opportunity for you and I to do a study right here. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) There's a, there's a gap in the literature, Wednesday and David, to the rescue. Oh, yeah. I think that, just put a pin in that, David. Um, and everybody, if you want to, um, if you want to read some research like that, just send me and David a DM and encourage us to do a study. Maybe okay. we will. Yeah, we, 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 you do need to send um, pictures and um, <laughs> stories of your sexual experiences, though, with the, uh, with the message. Um, you guys, uh, you actually don't, you guys. But <laughs> um, David, we have only a few more minutes, but I yeah. want to talk about, I want to talk about one of your more controversial um, positions. You said that, you know, in, when you were writing Insatiable Wives, which I have to urge everybody, you guys just buy the book Insatiable Wives. You will learn so much. It is so smart. It is so readable. The stories are so moving. You can't put it down. Read Insatiable Wives. And then you said, David, that in that book, you were more in a listening position. Mm -hmm. And then you said for your other two books, you were in a more, I think the word you might've used was you said you would never use the term aggressive again after watching uh, the first debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But you said you were in a little bit more of a perhaps combative, challenging stance. So I think, first of all, I think everybody should buy ethical porn for dicks. And I think we should have you on just to talk about that on another episode. But I really want people to hear you talk about your book, The Myth of Sex Addiction, uh, for for a few minutes here, and your controversial assertion that we've really misused and overused the term sex addict uh, when we're you know looking at people um, yeah. and their sexual behaviors. Ta- tell me about that. Tell us about your uh, how you got into taking on this idea uh, that sex addiction is a is a big problem and that lots and lots of people have it. Well, I'll say, you know, it was funny. I blamed Dr. Phil for this because um, <laughs> so in, 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 in Satiable Wives, I described this one guy who he was just desperate to see his wife with, a, with, with black men and or with other men in general. And the wives would try it or, or you know, consider it and then say no. And and um, he didn't let go of it, though. He was just really, really obsessed with this. And um and 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 he he ended up you know having three divorces because the wives were just not interested in this, and and I said in the book it'd be just kind of passing wise. I said it'd be really easy to diagnose the guy as a sex addict, but I don't believe in sex addiction. And the funny thing was that um, that comment 
um, got more press than the book in general. Um, because, and Dr. Phil had me on his show talking, you know, challenging the idea of sex addiction because there, there, there just weren't many clinicians like me who were questioning the idea of sex addiction. And it, it, it led again to, you know, everybody kept saying to me, well, you, you don't believe in sex addiction. Everybody else does. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not in the DSM. There's not good science behind it. So I ended up, you know, I questioned again, maybe I'm wrong, you know, and, and, and so I, so I spent about a year again, interviewing and reading and diving into the sex addiction literature, just trying to understand it, you know, as, as a scientist, Mm. as a scholar. And, and I'll say that I went in with the idea that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something legitimate here. Maybe, maybe sex really can be like an addiction and maybe this treatment really is working. And I came out of it saying that, you know, this is basically a belief system. This is, this is equivalent to a cult in some way. Mm. And that, you know, the reason people believe in sex addiction is that they believe in sex addiction. They, they, they view the strength of their belief as evidence for the belief itself. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and more than that, I, I said, you know, I think that this really might be doing some damage because it is pathologizing. It is both pathologizing male sexuality because overwhelmingly, you know, sex addicts are men, but then it's also excusing male sexual misbehavior. And, you know, as, as a man, you know, I, I know that there are times I've wanted to do things sexually that I knew I shouldn't do, Mm. but I was able to exert self-control. And I think that the, when we send this message that, you know, seeing a girl's, you know, shoulders bared in a, in a spaghetti strap top, we're telling girls and young boys that that is going to make the young boy lust so much that he might engage in rape or misbehavior. And I just think that that is such a destructive idea, both, both towards men and towards women. And yeah, it's horrible. I mean, it's a horrible way. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the greatest examples of how of how confirmation bias in yes. science, mostly by male scientists, has just given men a pass and at the same time, you know, set women up uh, to be, uh, you know, on the receiving end of really right. dangerous behaviors. And also has just, it, it, it's it's really, you know, impacted how we think about men in terrible yeah. ways, exactly. right? And so it's doing everybody a disservice to your, a disservice to your point. And, 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 you know, and uh, interestingly, I mean, uh, you know, I, I argued again that, you know, this is also just not good treatment. Right. And so then in the, in the, inter- I published that book in 2012 and in the intervening years, um, everything has just kind of gone my way with that argument. And, and you have to understand, I mean, I was, I was attacked. I, I, you know, I still regularly get death threats simply for challenging mm-hmm. the idea that sex is addictive. Um, and, you know, the people in the sex addiction industry have threatened to sue me probably 20 times um, just for criticizing them. And right. the, the, the interesting thing, though, is that 
you know, all of the research has kind of gone my way now is that, you know, we're, all of the research now indicates that people who believe themselves to be addicted to sex or porn, they don't actually watch more sex or have more sex or watch more porn than anybody else does. They just feel worse about it. And the, the predictor of self-identification as a sex addict is um, being raised religious and having moral conflicts with sexual behavior. So we really, and I, I've had these discussions with you before in which you say, I'm not saying that there are no people who are actually, you know, have very unhealthy relationships to their sexuality and who have sex compulsively. Uh, my understanding is that what you're saying is we, you, we just, we just profile people as sex addicts way too often and it's yeah. happening way too often clinically. It's happening way too much on television shows. You're basically saying, let's think about this. Yes. But I'm also saying that, um, we, we blame the sex when there's other issues at hand. And so for instance, you know, if I go into my doctor's office and I'm sneezing, my doctor doesn't say, David, you're a sneezing addict. You need to cut that shit out. <laughs> instead, my doctor tries to figure out, you know, do I have bacterial infection? Do I have allergies? Do I have COVID for God's sake? You know, then mm. try to figure out the cause. Well, sexual behavior problems um, are almost universally a symptom of some other issues. So, for instance, um, you know, a couple where the, um, the wife wants sex or the husband wants sex much less than their partner. And, discrepant desire you and, and they call the person who wants sex more an addict um the we we used to see in research a lot of um uh, men who use lots of pornography who have high levels of depression and anxiety and so for a long time people were saying well pornography use is causing those symptoms <laughs> then it turned out they did better research, longitudinal research, and they showed that the research showed that the the anxiety and the depression came first. That the number one way to you know increase a man's use of pornography is to get him divorced. Because now I see right. God. You know, this is so interesting because basically what you're saying is we need to go further. You're saying yeah. people are slapping on a diagnosis of sex addiction and saying, no, the etiology is that this person is a sex addict. And you're right. saying, no, that's not the etiology. There's yeah. something deeper going on. So don't, you're basically saying, don't be lazy, right? Yeah. And get dig into somebody's sexuality and sexual and social behaviors deeper rather than just profiling them with a convenient right. term that's been terribly misused. And, and I, I appreciate that so much. Yeah, the thing I say often is, you know, that there are there are two groups of people that have way more sex than sex addicts ever dreamed of having gay men and swimmers. <laughs> and very interestingly, they don't send they don't tend to identify as sex addicts very much. But they don't they have found ways to integrate that level of sex into their life in a in an ethical and thoughtful way. So what we're so I always ask them what's different, right? About somebody that has more sex than a sex addict, but isn't struggling with it. And it goes back to that moral conflict. Um and and, and basically they're having sex or wanting sex that they feel bad about. You know, it's so great, David, that you bring it back to that because, you know, we're talking about what's the difference maybe between a sex addict and a gay man who's happy um, with 
the amount of sex that he has, which somebody else might consider a lot. But the the difference is ecology, right? Right. The cultural context matters so much. And I'm reminded of Sarah Hurdy, um, one of my favorite comparativists, the great evolutionary biologist and primatologist who writes a lot about female sexuality and female maternal behaviors across species. And she talks about the term promiscuity still being used with a straight face in science. Mm-hmm. And, she's, and she said, um, promiscuous usually just is a term used to refer to a female having more sex than the person using the term thinks she should be having. <laughs> so, and and the, she, she kind of, bar- and I use that, that line a lot. I think she borrowed it from Kinsey because he said, you know, a nymphomaniac is anybody who has more sex than a therapist. <laughs> so, I can think of no better place to end with you, David, than that point. Thank you. First of all, I need you to come back and talk to us about ethical porn for dicks in another episode. And I just want to thank you um, on the last day of Sexual Health Month. I just want to I want to end by thanking you again for you know helping uh, people into cuckolding, into hot wifing, into swinging um, people who might think of themselves as sex addicts, but uh, very well might not be. Just thank you for shedding a light on their dilemmas and giving us language to support them and giving them language uh, to understand themselves in new ways. Yeah, and to to make you know to make healthy decisions, accepting themselves. I you know I don't want anybody to become a swinger or non monogamous if if it doesn't feel right for them. But for those people that have these desires or sexual interest and hate themselves. For having them. I want to help them because I, th- I think they deserve it. David, thank you so much for being here today and please come back soon. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Wednesday. Such a fun episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. And if you did, please go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Um, it really helps the success of the podcast and spreading this message. Much love, guys. <laughs>